You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Three to go. That's the number of Tuesday home times for me, Jim Bartlett, the 2020. But lots to talk about before the 15th of December. Begin by wishing Kevin Healy a speedy recovery. You'll miss Kevin. Get back soon. I was going to do an update on the reunited conflict between Morocco and Western Sahara today, but Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association said that things are relatively quiet. The wedding party she spoke about last week have been released, although the others have been detained, so I'll catch up with her for the program next week. Today we've heard a great deal about the war in Afghanistan in recent weeks following the Brereton Report tabling. Today I'm speaking with peace activist Sarah Orr about her last visit in 2019. Then to the Pacific with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan with the alarming news of COVID-19 out of control in French Polynesia. Bishop George Browning discussing warrior culture and Dr Tim Anson academic cancel culture. As winter approaches in the Northern Hemisphere, people prepare for increasingly cold and longer nights. And I would imagine for psychiatric nurse Sarah Ball from Chicago, a member of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, her thoughts are with the young people and their families, members of the Afghan Peace Volunteers in Bamiyan, 80 kilometres northwest of Kabul, and Kabul, the largest and capital city of Afghanistan, where she last visited in 2019. I spoke with Sarah recently and we talked about the thoughts of that last visit, more often because due to COVID-19, it hasn't been possible for peace activists to go to Afghanistan during 2020, and there's also the likelihood that next year as well. Indeed, and, you know, I've never visited in the winter, but I know... Kathy Kelly and many others have done so, of course, but I've heard many stories about how the winter is a very difficult time for people in Afghanistan, especially in the cities, not only because it gets very cold and snows, but because the poor often have to burn plastic because there really just is not any wood now that all the refugees from all of the country have moved there. So the entire city, I've heard, is just filled with smog to the point that you can't even see down to the other end of the street. And, of course, you can imagine how that affects the air quality. So it's cold. There aren't good heating sources. It's much more difficult to breathe. All of these things at the same time. And I have heard that, you know, COVID is, of course, quite difficult for the people there, um, as it is in Yemen, where I've heard there's a 25% infection rate. And there simply really aren't medical facilities So you're pretty much on your own. And some of the people that we have known have acquired COVID. We have heard that Afghan peace volunteers are somehow continuing their work in spite of all of this, which almost boggles the mind. But yes, my thoughts are very much with them. And also that the killings continue. Just last month, a number were killed, particularly young people. Yeah. You know, I was just, I've been reading about that and... I know that the the attacks by the Taliban are increasing, and 
special, the attacks by special forces, uh, often in the U.S., or you know, have been increasing as well. And, and I read that 212, there were 212 civilian deaths in October, which were more than any time since September 2019 in the past year. So things are getting worse, and I think that everybody is worried about a breakout of a civil war, as they have been for the last few years. And I. I often think of the amount of stress uh, one must be under to worry that civil war will, would break out at any time. Does it make it worse to have the U.S. troops there? Do the people tell you that? You know, there are really differing thoughts about that, and it's a bit confusing. And, of course, you know, all this is a bit secondhand, but I know that the people really don't feel that they're represented by their own government and Ashraf Ghani. They feel that the negotiations are being done without any consideration for them. And there are certainly a number of people who feel that the U.S., they do want the U.S. there. But at the same time, it's so difficult to tell who's behind attacks. And so many of the killings have been or may have been perpetrated by U.S. attacks. So it's really kind of a, a huge maelstrom of confusion and the Afghan peace volunteers very much want to complete, you know, into the fighting, and they want the U.S. out. But, of course, it's very complicated because when the U.S. leaves, they leave a bunch of Afghan forces with arms and with no jobs, arms which the U.S. brought. So, in effect, even if the U.S. leaves, the damage continues to be perpetrated by the U.S. So it's just a hideously complicated situation, um, and I know people have been talking about reparations that the U.S. could make, but what a it, – it, it's a terrible thing. You kept a, a fairly detailed diary of your time when you were there, and looking back on that time, can you talk about some of the special people? I'd imagine they're all special, but some, some of the people who stood out as leaders or – just special people for you that you got on really well with. Indeed. And, you know, I'm not going to use their real name just because things have gotten so much worse in terms of the Taliban, um, you know, carrying out assassinations and so forth. But one of them, who I, I think I've referred to before as Nagiba, she is somebody who grew up in the Bamiyan province and the Taliban attacked them, and I think it was around, it was the early 2000s, and killed most of the men in the towns and just swept through, and the people had to run up to the hills and live in the caves. And I did actually see those caves. There are lots of them that I think started out as often as religious caves for hermits, and they're all dotting the countryside. And it's almost, for me, it was a feeling like of a, of a haunted house because I heard over and over the tales of how the families would flee there and hide up in these caves far up in the mountains where, of course, there were no, no water or food sources or anything, and they would hide there for weeks often. And Nagiba was one of those people, and several people in her family died. And she is somebody who, I'd say she's in her early 20s now, but she's been ceaselessly working on behalf of her people just uh, Sometimes it had been with Afghan peace volunteers and sometimes on her own. And I'm astounded by her realization, as I think of it, that anything is possible. And this is, you know, coming from a woman, a young woman in Afghanistan. But she has an idea, and then she simply carries it out. 
And one of them, which I've described before, is how she formed a group of women in a small village, I think 14 or 15 women, who got together to form a mutual aid society. And she would go over several times a week and help organize the group towards self-sufficiency. And it was just so that they could feel a bond and have people to talk to and discuss common issues in the village. Um, But really it was a a radical, uh, I almost want to say revolutionary move that was simply something that she thought of and did. And I've been trying to keep that in mind, that I feel like a little of that also happened with COVID, that when suddenly COVID swept through Chicago, where I am, certain people were like, oh, we can form mutual aid societies and help one another out. And people did indeed do that. But in fact, there are people in Afghanistan who have been doing this from day one, helping the community in concrete ways. And she was one of the main ones. And of course, that's a very that's a very practical thing. So another another one of the people that I've had in mind is a young man who was driven to study. He wanted to study the history of war and nonviolence, and he I think was below twenty, maybe seventeen or eighteen. And there are libraries in Kabul, and I have been to to one of them. And he went and spent several weeks researching the history of nonviolence. And again, this is in Kabul, where there are, you know, attacks being carried out every day, an extraordinarily dangerous place. But he decided he wanted to study, and he spent all of his time doing so. So I was, when I was on my trips to Kabul, I was surrounded by these young people who had ideas and simply carried them out, teaching school, feeding the families, all very different young people. It was an extraordinary thing. And when you think of the history of Afghanistan over the last couple of decades or more, there hasn't been much peace, has there, even before the Americans came, long before they came? No, it's. Um, I think somebody said about Russia in the 20th century that anyone who lived in Russia in the 20th century had a very, quote, interesting life, which of course isn't a very good thing necessarily. And I feel like that's been exactly the case in Afghanistan as well in the last few decades, that everybody has had uh, a, quote, interesting life. And it it seemed as if every single person that I talked to or was introduced to in my time in Afghanistan had some kind of atrocity that they were familiar with, their family killed, or they were refugees or, or what have you. There was simply absolutely nobody who was unaffected, nobody at all. When you talk about the young woman and what she was able to do, I'm just thinking about the hurdles that would be put in front of her so that she could get through those to do what she did. Because it's a very male-dominated patriarchal society and women often not going to do much at all outside the house. Indeed, and, and you know, she she had to be very careful and I'm sure she put herself in much more danger than she sometimes let on because she, you know, wasn't a, 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 a very self-pitying person. She just went ahead and did things. But she often told me about how if you fell afoul of the mullah, sometimes you could be targeted. And especially if you lived in a smaller village, everybody knew what everybody was doing. And you simply couldn't do things that were a bit unusual. For example, one of the things that she thought would be kind of a neat idea is if she and this would be in Bamyan, if she moved in with a couple of female friends and they 
formed a kind of female working group together to form uh, reform conditions in Afghanistan. And that would be the kind of a thing that would be highly looked down upon and that you simply could not do. You, You simply can't. Somebody would find out about it. Somebody might report you. People would come and question what you were doing. There have often been killings of people who have, you know, done things that weren't looked kindly on. So whatever you do will be watched and noticed. And I'm not entirely sure how she managed to do some of what she did. You know, I'm sure she had to make several workarounds. And not only that, of course, but as a young woman, pretty much everybody is expected to marry and to marry quite early. And for most women, and of course for young men, when they get married, that's a cessation to all of their previous previous activity because you have children and then you have a family life. And, of course, that's not to say that you won't be happy in a family life, but you really wouldn't be able to carry on family life plus peace activist or teacher or organizer. It would just be incredibly, incredibly difficult. And then you'd have two or three generations all living in a small space? Yes. Mm-hmm. And often families living together in, uh, I don't know what the exact term is, but I'll just call it a compound for now, kind of a walled compound. You might have two or three families living together, and you'll share maybe a common garden, a common cellar, and a common water source. But everybody is there all the time, and it provides a lot of support, but it also means that, you know, you have to follow what everybody else is doing to a certain extent. That's the difference between being in a big city, isn't it? You can be more anonymous rather than being in a small area like that? Indeed. Um, and I know that several of the Afghan peace volunteers that I met said that they were committed to the Afghan peace volunteers, but they could only do it by catching the bus and uh, going in their off hours when their family weren't aware of it. <laughs> and, of course, you could not do that in a village uh, any which way. Tell me about your experiences of how the people are taking to permaculture. Yes, and you know what? I should just say going in that gardening and permaculture and so forth is simply not something that I personally (laughs) am any good at. But I was very interested when my friend, who I'll continue calling Nagiba, uh, talked to me about permaculture as being like nonviolence and the way that anybody can practice it, however good or bad you are at things like gardening. It's simply a way of living in one's environment, not only sustainably, but kind of with a with consciousness and, and respect. And with a group like the Afghan Peace Volunteers, that would extend to helping people become more self-sufficient in terms of um, helping make, for example, duvets for one another or having a garden and learning more about, about plants. Um, Nagiba herself was very interested in gardening, and she studied a lot of sustainable methods, like, you know, using gray water and having the chickens fertilize the garden and all of that. And she was becoming quite an expert in it and was trying to pursue teaching it at the university. And COVID and other things put a halt on all of that. But my impression was that permaculture, with the sense that it's kind of like nonviolence is being just practiced as a consciousness of your surroundings, was always in the background and was just a a very important thing, and especially in a place like Kabul or Bamiyan, where there are so few resources and there isn't even wood to burn and the air quality is just absolutely terrible, 
it's it's almost ironic that permaculture would be a focus. And I was actually thinking about this just yesterday, that there there's a kind of a tripartite ideological structure to the Afghan peace volunteers. It's green, equal, and nonviolent, the green being the permaculture. And those are kind of the three main ways in which people think of Afghanistan negatively. You know, Afghanistan is not green. Afghanistan is not equal. It's very violent. And yet the Afghan peace volunteers focus on those over and over and over, almost hitting it in the hardest, most difficult part because it's it's necessary. Who are their mentors or the people that they're, they're planning their lives on who have gone before them? You know, it's, they haven't been around that long, about just about 10 or 15 years, I believe. So they've had um, a couple of people from from abroad that have come over and helped. And it's becoming more and more self-sufficient. So now they are starting to organize themselves. But they do they do a lot of reading and studying of nonviolent figures. So they're all very conversant with Gandhi, for example, and Martin Luther King. And they repeat their sayings and just talk about them all of the time. So it's almost like being around them, you're infused with this history of nonviolence. So it's very much idealistic, but in a very practical way. Did you meet Dr. Hakim while you were there? I did. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think he is still working with them, but he was he was there and was in the process of helping them be more self-sufficient. Um, so he was still helping organize the street kids school and the Dubai project and all of that. And he's a doctor from Asia, from Malaysia or Singapore? Singapore, yeah. Singapore, I believe. Uh-huh. Who's dedicated many, many yeah. years. Yes, he was a, a medical doctor, and I think he originally came and into Bamiyan to help the people there, and then eventually went into Kabul to help out the Afghan peace volunteers. He's somebody with a, a big focus as well on what he calls relational learning, um, so one of the things he's also very interested in is setting up conversations between uh, young people in Afghanistan and over the world so that people can learn what other people are doing and feel more of a connectedness. So that's always been one of his big projects. And he has something called the Global Days of Listening that I think uh, takes place once a month where young people speak about certain very difficult issues and give reflections and talk to one another. I'm wondering, Sarah, about the mental health of the people who have been under war for some, or most of them at all of their lives. You're a psychiatric nurse. What do you see of the people and and any help that they might be getting to deal with problems that they have? This is something that Hakim often talked about, and I actually did ask him when I was there last year. I I said, you know, I'm sure that everybody must be suffering greatly, but everybody has just been so welcoming and enthusiastic and so forth so I'm wondering how it really affects people and he had definitely thought about it a lot because he said that it's difficult to tell at first and a lot of the psychological effects are under the surface so he's found over time that there's a a deep anxiety and sorrow people have that only comes out 
at odd moments. And you have to spend a, a little bit more time there than I did to really notice it playing out in people. And I remember my friend Nagiba saying that after the attacks in Bamiyan, where she grew up, it took about a decade for her to notice that people were finally, as she said, smiling again. So it doesn't, just as an outsider coming in, the mental health toll isn't there immediately, but just hearing the stories and then starting to notice people's reactions, I, I did feel that there was an undercurrent of stress about the possibility of civil war breaking out all the time, about relatives and friends who had been killed, about being in danger of your own death, and in fact for what you're doing in Afghan peace volunteers or even attending university, um, because if uh, someone in the Taliban finds a, a young man or woman in university, they they may be very well be killed. And I suppose, too, a lot of the young people are sort of trapped in the in the towns where they live or the small parts of Kabul, because I imagine it's not easy to move around. Tell us about the bus trip, the cab trip that you took with Najiba and some of your her friends. Oh, you're speaking about in, in Bamiyan? Oh, right, right. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> It's been about a year and so yeah. much has gone on. So lots of people, they jump into cabs there, and it's a very, you, you call one and you flag one down, and it's almost as if sometimes the cab driver becomes kind of a, a, a pal of yours and everyone talks to him. Um we we where did we set? We started out in Bamyan and we did a kind of maze around the city, picking up various things to eat. And I remember that um, the young man who got the cab for us was talking to the cab driver the entire time, and everybody was just talking like old friends. And then he drove us out to Bandamir, which was a trip of about, if I'm thinking of it rightly, about an hour and a half that was way out to a kind of a, a tourist destination where even a lot of the Afghanistan bigwigs in the government would go. And the cab driver got out and, you know, enjoyed his time as well. But on the way there in the hour and a half trip, we passed village after village after village that often looked like they were no more than 20 or 30 or 40 people. And I know that the, the water situation in Afghanistan is getting more and more worse. And it was really extraordinary seeing the intense isolation of people in these little villages dotting the landscape. And my feeling when I went past them was just how vulnerable they would be to attack if, you know, with U.S. airstrikes or the Taliban coming in, these people would have nothing. And indeed, so many times over the past couple of decades, they were invaded so many times by different forces, the U.S. and the Taliban, and just the the kind of echoes of trauma over the decades that these people have witnessed so many times, that was what was most resonant for me with, the, with, with that trip to Bandamir. Also, the isolation of older women. You've talked about your friend who, who made the break and is going out and sometimes at great danger to herself, but older women, her, her mother's generation, they would spend most of their lives in one place and not go out. Is that correct? That is correct. And Nagiva told me that it it depends a little bit on how strict the village where you're staying is, and especially if it's 
controlled by the Taliban or not, because if your village is controlled by the Taliban and the, the, the Taliban there are also quite strict, it can be a situation where the woman is not even allowed to leave the compound where she is, as in she's not even allowed to go out and wander around the very small village or talk to any of her friends at all. She's just inside with the family literally all of the time. Now, of course, this isn't true of all women Afghanistan, only in the areas that are controlled by the very strict Taliban, but it is a reality for many, many women. They cannot even have friends. What are your hopes for the people now there's a new government in the United States? I think the people in Afghanistan are just feel abandoned and are entirely weary. And after all these peace negoci- negotiations, where the, the, which don't seem to really put any restriction on the Taliban, and then the U.S. saying that they're going to withdraw, which I know, I know that President Biden is in favor of withdrawing the troops, um, but has often said that he wants to leave in special forces for counterinsurgency. But the fact that these so-called special forces have also caused a lot of chaos and because it's just so difficult to know who's who in Afghanistan, especially when you're in little villages trying to deal with a very complicated, complicated situation, civilians still die. There was a, a report in USA Today that came out just a year ago. Um, they did a long report on a, a situation where I think up to 60 children died in a case of special forces uh, operation gone wrong, where they had contracted out uh, to some group and there were two U.S. intelligence agents who turned out to be local warlords and the U.S. came in to intervene and it turned out to be civilians that they killed. They killed a, a large portion of the village, including 60 children. So it's not as if when U.S. forces leave, you know, suddenly everything gets a lot better. So the difficult thing with Biden, even though I do think that the U.S. should withdraw, is that you're still leaving this long history and people with U.S. arms and special forces who still do kill civilians. So it's not as if Biden being in the presidency somehow makes the situation entirely better. And the other worrying thing for me is that from what I've read, Biden really doesn't have Afghanistan on his mind, which is, of course, there are so many things these days to have on your mind, the COVID-19 and everything. But the fact that U.S. that the U.S. has been in Afghanistan now for, I think, 19 years, and all of a sudden, for both presidential candidates in the past year, really never to mention it whatsoever, is really a terrible thing. If I were in Afghanistan now, I would just feel angry, resentful, and abandoned. The U.S. had been there for 19 years, and now they're saying, well, I guess we'll just pull out some troops. It's a terrible thing. Well, even if they do pull out the troops, there's still the U.S. drone strikes, and they've been devastating for the people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think the people in Afghanistan know full well that drone strikes don't just happen with... um, uh, Republican candidates. <laughs> so I think they they are very aware of the U.S.'s foreign policy over the past couple of decades. And of course, now with, with what looks like might be Obama, I'm sorry, Biden's cabinet with Susan Rice 
and uh, Michelle Flournoy and people who have been part of the whole military-industrial complex for the last couple of decades, it doesn't look like very much will change, especially in terms of something like drone strikes. The people just get carried on from one cabinet to the next. So it will take some very great change. Finally, Sarah, it doesn't look as though you and your comrades or your friends will be able to return to Afghanistan in the very near future. Are you able to keep in touch with some of those young people that you met while you were there through the internet or through other avenues? Yes, and it's been my pleasure and honor, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. I've I've kept in touch primarily with two. Again, I won't use real names, but one of them being my friend Nagiba, who continues to do her good work, and the other, a, a young man who's very academically oriented and is really extremely well-read. So over email, we, we chat about books, um, <laughs> which is really wonderful, and, and give each other recommendations. And through everything that's been going on now in Kabul and daily worries about his own life and those of his family and friends, he continues his studies and to read voraciously. Any last thoughts? I think what really remains with me from Afghanistan is that things can be done and must be done. And Afghanistan, the young people that I met with, seem to have their backs up against the wall, and when that happens, you can either despair or you can carry out all of your ideas, and somehow uh, they're living in the way, they're being the change they want to see in the world, so to speak, and we can do that too. In fact, we all must do it, Um, and it's the people in Afghanistan who actually are doing it, so I think we should take a clue from them and do be the change we want to see in the world. Thank you so much, Jan. And thanks to Sarah Ball, a member of Forces for Creative Nonviolence. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Women workers answer to COVID. Capitalism created this crisis. Workers can solve it. Like the sound of shorter working hours in secure employment with no loss in pay? A comfortable income for everyone. Taxing the rich? Jobs made public with workers in charge. You women who want to be free, just take a tip from me. Radical Women is launching this winning plan on the 8th of December at 7pm. Join others to take these demands into our unions and communities. 
All genders welcome. Contact Radical Women at OptusNet.com.au. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. It's been described as a tragedy unfolding in French Polynesia where the COVID-19 pandemic is out of control. On Friday I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and began by pointing out that when we last spoke, there were encouraging signs about some countries successfully controlling the virus. There are a number of Pacific Island countries that still remain COVID-free. These are smaller island states like uh, Tuvalu and Federated States Micronesia and others that have uh, um, managed to restrict uh, the transmission of the coronavirus basically by closing their borders or restricting international arrivals. Um, and it's one of the advantages of isolation and distance that uh, a number of small island states have either had no cases or just a few. Um, many countries had an initial surge at the beginning of the um, uh, pandemic, um, but managed to get things under control through setting up health controls at the border and testing regime, getting equipment and so on. Uh, so, for example, the French territory of New Caledonia has had 32 confirmed cases since March, and that's uh, a significant number for a small country, but they haven't had cases for months, uh, simply because of a tight border regime. In contrast, the French uh, dependency of French Polynesia, islands to the east in the eastern Pacific, are in the midst of a terrible disaster. In recent weeks, um, indeed since uh, August, uh, the number of cases has been rising, the number of deaths has been rising, and uh, the country's under real stress from the pandemic. It really highlights one of the problems that some of the uh, places in the Pacific Islands that have been worst affected by coronavirus are those not simply those with large populations, like Fiji and so on, but it's countries that don't control their borders, and that's the Pacific colonies territories like Guam, which is a U.S. territory, or French Polynesia, which is still controlled uh, by France uh, in many ways. Um, those have seen the coronavirus get out of control simply because local government doesn't control uh, a range of key services. Well, what is France doing to make things worse? One of the problems was that um, there's a, a difference between New Caledonia and French Polynesia. In, as we've talked about on the program many times, New Caledonia, 20 years ago, signed an agreement called the Numir Accord, which uh, saw the successive transfer of powers from Paris to the local government in Numir, the capital of New Caledonia. Um, and so over time, the local authorities in New Caledonia, even though they're still not fully, fully sovereign, 
they control greater aspects of education, of administration, of health, and so on. And obviously, in a time of a pandemic, having control over decision-making on health is really crucial. And so while uh, um, immigration and customs are still uh, uh, controlled uh, by France as the, the administering power, to be able to put your own health officials at the border to test people, to set up a quarantine system, is really important. And so New Caledonia, because it has greater autonomy, has been able to um, uh, set up a quarantine system. Indeed, earlier in the year, people had to go into two uh, weeks in a hotel, quarantine, similar to Australia, but then a further week in uh, their own home before they were allowed out and about. So a three-week quarantine period, and that was a way of strictly tamping down on possible transmission from people arriving from overseas. And we've seen in Australia, from the Ruby Princess to the hotels in Victoria, what a crucial issue that is. And because the independence movement, the FLNKS, is part of the government in New Caledonia, because the Kanak people have had a long history of pandemics through colonial times, from smallpox to influenza to measles and other things, there's a really strong culture that uh, people have to control the situation. And so they have. Uh, last month, for example, the French overseas minister, uh, Sebastien Lecornu, came to New Caledonia to... Um, uh, visit New Caledonia, and they said, well, you can come, but you have to spend two weeks in quarantine. And he got all huffy and said, hang on, I'm the Minister of France. This is France. And they said, well, if you want to come, you go into hotel quarantine. So he did. And the difference is in New in French Polynesia that the, although there's a statute of autonomy in French Polynesia, the local government doesn't have the same authority over the borders, over health systems, and so on. And that's been one of the reasons that as France has changed its policies, so French Polynesia has been dragged along. People who may follow the international news says, you know, France has got a serious, serious problem where there's, uh, they're into their second, in some say, third wave of coronavirus with uh, significant tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of cases. And this is a, a major problem that impacts on the people of French Polynesia, even though they're on the other side of the world from metropolitan France. How many islands are there in French Polynesia, Nick, and how widespread are they from each other? It's a big country. It's, um, it's five major archipelagos. The main island that most people know is Tahiti and the, the neighbouring island of um, Morea. But there are five far-flung archipelagos, the Marquesas Islands, the Tuamotus, the uh, Windward and Leeward Islands of the Society Islands, and so on. It's an area as big as Australia. In some ways, it has an exclusive economic zone. This is the maritime zone, 200 uh, nautical miles drawn around every island. It's over 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. So it's a big, big country, largest um, exclusive economic zone in the Pacific Islands. And, you know, Kiribati has got 3.5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, and that's a country as wide as Perth to Sydney. So you can see the enormity of it. And one of the tragedies of this is that most of the cases of coronavirus were in Tahiti, the main island, which is obviously the main tourism hub, um, but have now spread to some of the outer islands. And so there's a number of cases on the island of Rangaroa in uh, the Tuamotus. And this is a, a significant problem because, as is the case in many developing countries, the outer islands are not as well serviced with health services and so on. And the, the local mayor I, I saw the other day 
in Rangaroa is desperately trying to negotiate with uh, Air Tahiti and with um, the French military even to set up a system for medical evacuations if cases develop to the stage where they require intensive care rather than the care that could be provided by the local doctor, you know, home isolation and treatment and so on. Because, uh, you know, Tahiti has one major hospital that has intensive care facilities. They've got um, uh, only 45 beds in that intensive care unit. And currently, there are, just a couple of days ago, the latest figures I saw, there are 22 people in intensive care at the moment. So a week ago, over half the beds in the intensive care unit were taken up with COVID patients. And so it's a significant challenge. The, the latest figures are quite worrying. In the last 24 hours, there were 231 infections in French Polynesia. Um, there's been over 13,000 cases, 70 people dead. And this is a country that's about 279,000, 280,000 people. So when you start doing the maths, this is one of the highest per capita rates of infection in the world. The timeline of this is, is quite shocking. How many French people live on those islands? It's mostly Maui or Polynesian people who live in French Polynesia. Certainly uh, in Tahiti, there's a number of people, French-French, uh, uh, people of European heritage who are there. Um, but uh, French Polynesia wasn't a colony of settlement like New Caledonia. So in New Caledonia, the Canaks are a minority in their own land. They only make up about 40% of the population. Whereas French Polynesia, the vast majority of people are Maui, uh, the, the local word for the Polynesian people who make up there. The, the president, Edward Fritsch, is of Polynesian heritage. And, and so they, they have a local government, a local assembly and so on. But it's still very much under French administration, French courts can overrule legislation passed by the local assembly. France still controls defence, foreign policy and, of course, the borders. And you look at the chart of what happened and the timeline of this, it's, it's very significant. I reported on the first case in the Pacific, which was in French Polynesia. Back in March, uh, as things were developing around the world, the French Polynesian representative in the French National Assembly, a woman named Maina Sage, was in Paris. She had a meeting with the French Education Minister at the time, and he was later found to be sick with the coronavirus, with COVID-19. And she discovered on her return to Tahiti, having been visiting, you know, on official duties in Paris, that she was sick, went into quarantine, and that was the first recorded case in French Polynesia back on the March uh, the 11th, the 12th on the side of the deadline. Since that time, there were a number of cases, particularly from international arrivals, tourists, people from French Polynesia returning from France, and, uh, and some arriving French military or uh, civil servants who come on rotation. Um, one French plane arrived with a pilot uh, from France, a military plane uh, with the pilot, um, later found to be confirmed with COVID-19. But the authorities cracked down, as everyone has tried to do, to limit uh, community transmission and was largely under control. So by uh, late April, uh, things were relatively under control. They'd had about 60 cases, but um, they'd managed to control uh, uh, community transmission. And throughout May, June, July, there were only four new cases, and these were all people who'd arrived at the uh, international airport of Faha in, in Tahiti. What happened, however, was that France opened up its uh, economy 
as some of the business community here keep talking about, we have to move ahead for the economy and local businesses, which are very much reliant on international tourism, were pressing the government to open up. The French government in Paris also has a policy of what they call territorial continuity and wants to maintain air and transport links to its far-flung empire in every ocean in the world. And so uh, they have Air France flights going to, ta- um, to Tokyo and then connecting to French Polynesia because people didn't want to transit through the United States, as they often do because of the health hazards of, uh, of passing through uh, uh, the United States. The number of flights was limited. Uh, things were under control relatively. There were only four cases over three months. But then on the 15th of July, France made the decision to open uh, borders, reopen the economy. Looking at the graphs, it's, it's just shocking. Within two weeks and two days, there were three cases. Three days later, there was five cases. Four days later, there was 43 cases. And then the curve just rises. And has been rising until weeks. Uh, the health authorities say it's now stabilising. But... There have been 13,000 cases in the period since March. Now, 13,000 cases for a, a tiny country is quite shocking. New Caledonia, as I say, a country that's not that different in population, has had 32 confirmed cases. And uh, uh, everyone's left hospital. They're, they're like Australia. They've had cases. Um, but there's no one currently in hospital in New Caledonia. Whereas, um, you know, they've had more than 200 people a day confirmed with coronavirus in in recent days. It's a really dangerous situation and it's really stretching the health and medical uh, people that I've spoken to um, in such a small country. What's the regime for testing? They've got, uh, you know, relatively good equipment now um, um, and the sort of testing regime, uh, they've set up, uh, you know, laboratories to do this sort of testing and so um, there's uh, quite an extensive uh, testing program one of the problems, though, is that, that uh, it's impacting people in, in uh, ways, you know, the, the medical jargon is comorbidities. You know, people are at greater risk of serious impacts from uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 if they've got health, other health problems. One of the big issues for people in Polynesia, not just French Polynesia, but countries like Samoa and Tonga, is uh, high rates of diabetes and high rates of uh, obesity. These are sort of factors that can impact on uh, how you, you bounce back from uh, um, being infected with the, the coronavirus. And one of the worrying signs about this is, on the latest data that I've seen, only 12% of people who've died in French Polynesia are over 60. You know the jargon that this really impacts people in their 70s and 80s and so on, but um, you know, 80, 88% of people are younger than 60 who've, uh, who've been been impacted. And so this is a serious problem. And, you know, the the uh, independence movement has been very anxious about this. Um, uh, Moatai Brotherson, who's uh, uh, a member of the Independence Party, Tabini Huaratira, he represents uh, um, French Polynesia in the uh, National Assembly in Paris, one of two people in Paris. He's actually called on neighbouring Pacific countries to provide support. And uh, given the experience that many independent Pacific countries have had about controlling the, uh, the pandemic, despite economic costs, it's interesting the other day, New Caledonia, which has got the uh, pandemic under control, offered to provide some um, equipment and, and material that they had uh, that they're not using, um, simply because uh, all the obvious uh, things about 
PPE, you know, the protective equipment, about the testing uh, and so on. And let's not forget that there's a serious, you know, surge of cases in France. France brought in a, uh, an overnight curfew that's um, been applied to most uh, departments across France, but it's also been applied to French Polynesia, not to New Caledonia, but French Polynesia is under a nighttime curfew at the moment, which lasts until um, mid-December when the situation will be reviewed. Does that mean, Nick, that all tourism is stopped, even from the United States? Technically, people are, are uh, able to, to, to travel still, but there are restrictions and, uh, you know, the opening up of the economy on the 15th of, of July, uh, which opened the way for European and uh, US tourists to arrive, was a problem. There was also a number of people who came back, French Polynesians who'd been in France were due to come home and just as we have thousands of Australians stranded overseas because of the government restrictions uh, and Scott Morrison's failure to set up a system in Australia to repatriate people, vulnerable people, particularly who want to come home, so the same problem has existed uh, for French Polynesians. And some of the cases uh, confirmed uh, of arrivals with, uh, with COVID-19 were of uh, French Polynesian residents rather than tourism. But, um, you know, French Polynesia is in a difficult situation. You know, tourism makes up a, a significant part of government revenues. Without that, a number of small business owners have gone to the wall. Uh, major hotels have had a really hard time. I think one of the problems was that uh, bringing in American tourists in July, August, allowed the uh, spread of uh, transmission of, of the virus um, to outer archipelagos. So, as I mentioned, not just uh, the, uh, the Society Islands, but also the Tuamotu Archipelago uh, and, uh, and other locations, Bora Bora and so on, have seen small numbers of cases, and the belief is that that was um, possibly through tourism. The availability of food for the people, Nick, is a fair bit of the food into those islands, does that come from overseas or is it local? There's a lot of local, um, you know, across the Pacific, people have... Uh, gone back to planting, uh, you know, growing their own food, but uh, a significant amount of uh, food, of uh, materials, of fuel uh, and so on has been brought in uh, from overseas, whether from France or uh, from the United States and Hawaii, particularly for French Polynesia. Um, one of the problems is that the cost of that has risen. So there's an enormous impact on uh, poorer members of the community, and that's true in every country, including Australia, that you've got a, um, a significant significant problem with uh, um, the uh, uh, you know working class people, people who are unemployed, people living in squatter settlements are going to do it obviously much tougher than uh, people in uh, public service jobs and in uh, well-off uh, situations. And with such a large number of people unwell and some dying, how has this disrupted the tending of crops and fishing? A significant uh, concern that, uh, you know, the economic impacts are being very hard fit. At the moment, there's, you know, there is enough food, enough food security, uh, um, you know, despite uh, one of the paradoxes of being a French colony is that the, the level of GDP is higher in French Polynesia on paper than in many other of the independent countries. But um, this is a, a classic example that GDP is not the only measure of well-being in a community. And, uh, and so you've got a situation where the, the lack of control over national sovereignty, over borders, over systems of health and administration in a colonial context 
is, is revealed very sharply. And it's worth highlighting that the, another place in the Pacific that's had similar problems has been Guam, the U.S. Territory. I talked uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic about the situation in Guam, where a U.S. aircraft carrier, which was uh, originally cruising off Vietnam, uh, but had a number of confirmed cases of COVID-19, came to APRA Harbour Naval Base, uh, U.S. Naval Base on Guam, started to uh, get more cases, and so the ship commander arranged to uh, relocate people, not onto the military base at Apra Harbour, but into empty tourist hotels. Guam has seen a similar spread, not as high quite in terms of per capita numbers, uh, but still significant spread of coronavirus and uh, COVID-19 from that early problem in March where the USS Theodore Roosevelt. So this question of colonialism, of militarization, of the military as a vector for transmission is uh, a real problem uh, and and has really highlighted this question about self-determination, about the capacity to control your own affairs in a very, very stark way. Were the war games cancelled? The United States uh, conducted RIMPAC, biennial naval exercises, uh, this year. In Hawaii, there were massive protests um, against RIMPAC from ordinary citizens who were concerned that amongst the naval forces that that joined these, uh, not just American forces, but uh, countries that are invited to participate, including Australia, in these massive war games, that uh, the crews shouldn't stop in Hawaii, in Honolulu and in other islands for rest and recreation. So the war games that are held every couple of years and have been for decades as the major exercise in the Pacific by uh, US Indo-Pacific Command, which is headquartered in Hawaii, um, were simply sea-based exercises. And they were, uh, for a much reduced time this year, compared to normal, crews weren't allowed to go and you know spend a week on rest and recreation in Honolulu after they participated in the war games because of this anger in Hawaii that um, they were facing greater risk uh, because every aircraft carrier in the, in the US 7th Fleet, uh, the USS Ronald Reagan, uh, the Nimitz, Theodore Roosevelt, um, which can have four or 5,000 crew aboard, all of them had cases of COVID-19. And the US military has kept a lot of the data secret about how many people have been affected, particularly because they don't want to give operational, they don't want to tell so-called enemies uh, which ships are capable of functioning and which aren't. And certainly for a period when uh, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, this giant aircraft carrier, was parked in uh, in Guam, you know, they had a couple of thousand crew out of 4,000 on shore. You know, the number of crew eventually confirmed as being uh, infected with COVID-19, uh, serving, you know, suffering from COVID-19 after infection from the coronavirus was um, more than a 1,000 of the crew. Looking to the, the near future for French Polynesia, Nick, the opposition has blamed the president for mismanagement of the of the crisis and France has been blamed but what's being done to limit the increase in the numbers of people who are being affected? The health authorities are acting. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, response by uh, you know ordinary workers as we've seen. One of the courageous things that happened is that all of the nurses who are undergoing nurse training at the nurse training school in Tahiti have uh, gone to work uh, with the hospital, so nurse trainees, sorry, not fully qualified, but with some skills, 
have uh, gone onto the wards to uh, give some relief to the uh, uh, the nursing staff that are um, you know under some pressure because of the number of cases uh, which are far above what the hospital would normally deal with in Tahiti. France has sent, uh, uh, I think now two dozen, uh, about 25 uh, specialist support staff uh, who've arrived from France, you know, which is a, a significant commitment given France itself is under enormous pressure from the uh, the surge in cases uh, in uh, in mainland France. Um, and so there's been a response, as we've seen in Australia, from doctors, from nurses, from lab technicians, from uh, ordinary people, cleaners and, and so on involved in the health system who have borne the burden of decision-making by government officials that have uh, um, you know, not really addressed the enormity of this. Um, you know, it's too early to tell how this will play out. As I say, although the cases have risen sharply and, you know, within the last few days, there's still more than 200 new cases uh, every day and that's going to be um, uh, therefore playing out with uh, some people who obviously have a minor case, some will get better quickly, but others will end up in hospital. Some may die. I think this is going to be uh, a problem well into the new year um, until the authorities can manage to get this surge under control. And in a country, as I say, of less than 280,000 people, um, people know those that have been impacted, um, and that's going to reverberate. Um, and this discussion about what it means to control your own affairs. The irony and tragedy of this is that the leading independence figure in French Polynesia, Oscar Tamaru, is currently on trial under what many regard as uh, a frame-up, and he's been taken to New Caledonia uh, for his trial, which is underway uh, beginning this week, this very week. Tamaru was mayor of Faa, which is one of the largest outer suburbs of the capital, Papeiti, where the main international airport is. He's been elected and re-elected there for decades as the mayor. Um, he's the leader of the main independence party, Tabini Huiratira, and the local council there gave uh, the local radio station uh, a subsidy, Radio Tefana. Uh, that's uh, a common practice in French Polynesia, but the French authorities have ruled that that's ineligible. They hit um, Radio Tefana with a $100 million uh, CFP, Pacific Franc uh, fine, which is over a million dollars, $1.3 million Australian on average, and the radio station can't afford uh, to pay that. They're likely to go into receivership. And uh, Tamaru, as the mayor who uh, oversaw the grant to that community station, has been charged. His financial bank account was sealed and seized by the uh, uh, the French prosecutor, Hervé Leroy. So his personal money was seized in case he fled the country, which is just ridiculous. He's currently on trial for this, and uh, um, just the headlines uh, are talking about, you know, that this is like uh, uh, the frame-up of other independence leaders. They, you know, just as they couldn't get Al Capone uh, on the crimes he committed, they claim on tax fraud. So uh, people are, 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 you know, bringing up these sort of charges, which many locals see as trumped up as a way of removing the key independence leader from the country at a, at a really crucial time. It's it's quite striking that, that, that France is uh, taking this step. Why has he been taken to New Caledonia? Well, there was a, a concern that um, the French court and the French prosecutor had a, a conflict of interest over this issue because it is the French prosecutor who seized the bank account of, of the independence leader. 
and uh, the feeling that he wouldn't be able to get a fair trial from the local authorities. And so they've moved into the uh, different district of the courts. So New Caledonia has a separate uh, court district, a bit like the U.S. federal system. Travelled there, and uh, uh, there were pictures in the papers yesterday of him sitting in court, uh, everyone masked up, as uh, this hearing uh, is underway and will take uh, place over the next few days. Um, there's a lot of anger. You know, this is, is regarded uh, as um, a political trial rather than a criminal trial, and uh, Temeru quite openly has talked about this. Um, he doesn't regard this as a, a fair fight. He sees this as a political trial. You know, it's coming at a pretty crucial time in a country that has, uh, has been through a lot. French President Emmanuel Macron was due to visit uh, French Polynesia in um, March, uh, sorry, early April last year, for a long-planned visit that's been postponed a number of times, but with the uh, surge in coronavirus cases in uh, in March and April, both in France uh, and in French Polynesia, that meeting was postponed. Macron has uh, re-announced that um, the meeting will be held in March 2021, but um, let's wait and see uh, whether the current situation, both in France and in French Polynesia, makes it possible. My suspicion is that they may once again postpone this trip. Macron eager to do uh, a trip before uh, the French presidential elections in 2022, but um, conditions until a vaccine can be deployed, until uh, enough people can be vaccinated and and health systems strengthened to deal with uh, any further outbreaks, uh, this is going to be an ongoing problem, both uh, culturally, economically and health-wise. It's... uh, uh, a really worrying situation. The fact that, uh, you know, the key independence leader may be locked up in jail by the time Macron comes is a certain symbolism uh, because earlier in the year I interviewed a number of people from community and church associations who were planning protests against Macron's visit over the question of the legacies of nuclear testing. France detonated 193 atomic and hydrogen bombs in French Polynesia and many people are living with the health and environmental consequences of 30 years of nuclear testing in the 20th century. There are thousands of workers, including Oscar Temeru himself, who served as workers uh, on uh, Mururoa and Fungatofa atolls during the period of the, the French military deployment for the nuclear testing program. Neighbouring communities were clearly affected. France, of course, during the 30 years of testing, said that there were no problems. They've now admitted that they are and people were expecting Macron to say something about how France will fulfil its responsibilities for the uh, nuclear survivors. And this is all the more important because uh, not far away, on the 22nd of January, uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons comes into force. This is a treaty uh, which France hasn't signed, but places a significant moral and legal pressure on France and other nuclear weapons powers. Um, It has important provisions for the first time in a disarmament treaty about assistance to nuclear survivors, not just people in Japan affected by the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, but also people affected by nuclear testing and other elements of the nuclear weapons uh, uh, deployments. And so, um, you know, Macron's visit will be highlighted by groups like Muro Etato, the Association of uh, Nuclear Workers who worked at the test sites, by Association 193, uh, which is a church-based uh, a group. Uh, obviously, 193, uh, the, the number of tests conducted, um, so Association 
193 is a, a, a fairly major church-based group that will be campaigning around compensation issues, around justice issues. It may be that the COVID pandemic uh, may bring another delay to this situation. People will have to have their say later on. Okay, Nick, thanks for that. Thank you. Journalist and researcher, Nick McClellan. Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. Music has been at the heart of the city of Darabin's rich cultural history. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms is an audio tour that covers the history of country, rock, punk, cabaret, rabbinica, folk and traditional music styles in the Darabin area. Experienced as a walking tour via the Echoes app or listened to at home via the web, the tour brings listeners to 15 locations to reveal the songs and stories behind the city's venues, past and present. Visit BeatsBalladsAndBallrooms.com for more information. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms was commissioned and funded by Darabin Arts for Hyperlocal. A 3CR supporter. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. I spoke recently with Bishop George Browning, the president of Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. George, it's true that the Brereton report was much anticipated. Nevertheless, it's generated a great deal of discussion and perhaps hand-wringing by some. You put your thoughts to paper with an article in Pearls and Irritations titled A Warrior Culture. Could you share those thoughts for the program today? What I really wanted to, to get over was some thought about the basic, myths which form Australian identity and for good or ill the dominant myth in Australian identity is the Anzac myth 
in essence, there's nothing wrong with that, except that it has become so exalted that it actually takes the place of any other contributing factors in Australian identity. Uh, over the, the whole life of, of Australia, brutality has been very much part of our way of life. Uh, when the convicts came, they were brutally treated by the, um, the, the police force and by some of the settlers too. And uh, the floggings that they, they endured were quite terrible. That violence then was, uh, became part of the way in which indigenous people were dealt with. The recordings in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age at the time justified that kind of treatment of the First Nations people on the basis that they were not like us. They were uncivilized. In, in, in fact, they were deemed to be less than human. Therefore, violence was, was possible. With that background, we went to war in various fields, and we haven't always had a frightfully good reputation in war. Australians have a, have a warrior reputation, particularly in the Middle East. During the First World War, there, is, there are many recordings of, of Australians dealing brutally with the Palestinian people and with, with Arabs because they were deemed to be uh, lesser human. In the present day, we make a, a big emphasis upon our military history. We do so with the Australian War Memorial, which is about to receive something less than a billion dollars, in, not in renovation, but in rebuilding. Part of it's going to be pulled down and, and part of it's to be restructured. And those on the committee tend to be followers of the more military side of Australia's history. Uh, Tony Abbott's on it, Brendan Nelson, and a number of others. Added to that, in the Australian Honours System, the military had their own division. So that if you want, if people are deemed to qualify for uh, an AM or an AO or an AC or etc., uh, if you're in the military, you are more likely to qualify than you are in the general division simply because of the numbers. Uh, I was on a um, government quanga appointed by then Prime Minister Keating to to look at the Australian honour system, and we we conducted many interviews throughout Australia. And un almost universally, the view was there should, there should only be one division, a general division, in which people were treated equally. Um, but <clears throat> when the Howard government came to power, all the resolutions were shelved, including that one, which, uh, in my view, is a great pity. My argument is that while what happened in Afghanistan with the 39 um, murders and the 25 Australians who are accused of them, is absolutely shocking. I think it is fair for us to ask, is there an underlying culture uh, which nurtures such uh, a warrior outlook and uh, exemplifies or puts on a pedestal those who are deemed to be heroes in a military way? And I'm, my argument is, yes, there is such a culture within Australian mainstream, and we would do better to give equal emphasis to the arts, to the history and life of the indigenous people, um, to the early settlers and their struggles, particularly the women who uh, endured great privation in the early days of Australian life, etc. And uh, unless we put all these forms of identity of Australian life together and we only, we only choose to emphasise one, then it will be um, out of perspective and not well balanced. And so because of these terrible happenings, I think it is time for us to reconsider 
the underlying myth of Australian identity. What makes us Australian? Are, are we particularly a violent people? Most of us would say absolutely not, but our history says otherwise, that we actually have very dark pages in our history of brutality, both at the beginning and obviously in the current time. So that's what my article was about. And I suppose too, George, the number of wars that Australian soldiers have participated in over the last hundred or so years is a lot, aren't there? Yes, and um, all your listeners would be well aware of the fact that it suits politicians to distract people from domestic difficulties by focusing upon an international campaign. And uh, as I said in my article, many people did that. Lyndon Johnson did it in terms of the Vietnam War. Uh, Maggie Thatcher did it in terms of the Falklands War. Uh, John Howard really did it in terms of the, the Gulf War, etc. And it is, it is very easy for politicians to turn to an external conflict to divert people's attention away from the realities at home. And uh, sadly, almost always a vote winner to do so. Can you talk a little more about the Anzac myth? Because it's now becoming, as you've said, a quasi-Australian national day. It wasn't always like that, was it? No, it, it wasn't. Anzac Day was used to be fairly low-key. My, my father was a returned soldier in the, in the Second World War, my grandfather in both wars, both First and Second World War, and neither of them paid a huge amount of attention either to Remembrance Day or, in my father's case, to Anzac Day, because they considered that uh, by engaging in the activities that happen today, it's more a glorification of war itself, or it can be a glorification of war itself, rather than a subdued, reflective time on the pain and, and loss of war and the sad reality is that the vast majority of people who go to war, and even if they come home without major injury, mentally and in other ways, they suffer for the rest of their lives. And uh, the, the statistics are quite terrible in Australia. Many, many, many returned soldiers take their lives. So the, the ongoing suffering of war is very great. Added, added to that point, with sober reflection, it is hard to justify involvement in any of those wars, with the probable exception of World War II. World War I need never have occurred. It was really the egos of certain European leaders who would not back down that led to this, this catastrophe. Certainly, there's no doubt that Adolf Hitler and his evils needed to be combated. But Vietnam, why did we need to go there? Com Vietnam is still, as it was, a communist country. But it's a friend. It's one of Australia's friends. And the Gulf War, what good has that brought? And it's very hard to argue that it has. When we engaged in the, in the Gulf War, um, both um, President Bush and, and uh, Tony Blair and, and John Howard, I think, expected to be greeted as heroes as we set the people free. But there was no understanding that um, in Iraq, there were people who were Sunni, people who were Shia, people who were Kurds, who all had their own agendas and identities to secure. And no thought was given to that before we engaged in that war. Although we've been involved in so many, um, most of them have not been really engaged in for honourable reasons. 
And to add to that warrior culture, as you pointed out, there's the, the aim to be one of the leading exporters of armaments. That's something quite new. It is. I think it's only about three or four years ago that this became a publicised ambition of the of the coalition government that we wanted to be in the top. I've forgotten now whether it's the top five or top ten exporters of armaments. Well, for goodness' sake, why do we want to contribute to further violence in the world? Your listeners would be well aware of the fact that one of the most violent, divided, suffering nations in the world is Yemen. Yemen, um, there are many people who are involved in Yemen, but the armaments used in Yemen are, are manufactured in Britain. They're manufactured in the United States of America. The planes that fly from Saudi Arabia to Yemen are refueled by American airplanes. Why are we involved in such violent behavior uh, and causing so much terrible suffering? It is argued that Yemen is the has the greatest humanitarian crisis of any country in the world, and that's saying something at the present time. Even though the Brereton Report might not become law, might not be taken to the courts for quite a while, it's still going to make a big difference, I believe, to that culture, that warrior culture. It is, and um, I mean, batting on the other side of the debate for a moment, uh, I do feel for honourable men and women who've served the Australian nation well in the armed forces, whose whole identity is besmirched by the activity of a few, and that that is really quite tragic, and uh, somehow or another, the mainstream of people in the armed forces need to be supported and reassured that they are honoured and respected. Um, but no, it's going to go on for a long time and uh, um, it's likely that the legal arguments are going to take not just weeks, months, but years to gather so that the, the actual court and the decisions of the court may not be known for literally for years yet. You're also the president of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Yes. Can you talk a little about the challenges that the organisation has faced during 2020 and your achievements as advocates for Palestine? Well, it, it, it has been a challenge because we've, um, much of our work is face-to-face engagement with, with uh, political leaders and other leaders within the community, and we haven't been able to, to, to do any of that. But on the other side of the coin, um, through the work of Sarah, who deals with the, the social media, we have considerably built up our, our engagement digitally so that we, probably, we now have more people who are members of APAN and more people who are engaged with the issues of APAN than we have ever had in the past, which is very encouraging, really. Uh, in the report this year, I said that I think there are certain emphases we need to concentrate on in the coming year, not in order of priority, but they include these. One, we need to strengthen our links with the Australian Indigenous community, making the obvious point that their struggles are very similar to the struggles of Palestinians. They're both First Nations people of the lands in which they live. They're people who have been, who have been displaced, forcibly displaced from their own rightful land and property, etc., both have had their rights greatly uh, reduced. So um, I'd like that linkage to be made stronger. 
Secondly, I think we need to make stronger links with the Jewish community, many of whom really are reviled by the leadership in Israel of Netanyahu and his extreme right-wing government. And it's, it, I don't think it's well enough realized that, like all communities, all religious groups, all civil groups, there, there are divisions. And notwithstanding Trump's supposed support for, <clears throat> for Israel during his term in office, uh, the figures show that something over 70% of, Jew, of American Jews voted Democrat in the last election. And I think the overreach of the Israeli government um, and the, uh, the blatant uh, disregard for human rights and the, the theft, the ongoing theft of land, um, the displacement of people, demolition of houses, the destruction of um, orchards, etc., 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 these things are very disturbing to many, many people in the Jewish community. And I think we need <coughs> to work harder to see that we're we're really both singing from the same song sheet. What what Israel, what Netanyahu is doing, is actually diminishing the moral standing of Israel and Israel's future. And and reasonable people of the Jewish community should not be standing for this atrocity, really, in their own nation. The third thing I think we need to do is to move away from a debate about a one-state solution, a two-state solution, which has really got nowhere, and concentrate much more on the reality that Israelis and Palestinians together have equal human rights, and that we in the Palestinian support group, if you can put it that way, we honor the rights of Israelis to live as everybody else lives, in the same way that we honour the rights of Palestinians to do the same. And I think that we should make a better effort to make this argument internationally because if we stay, if things stay on the same course that they're on, what will end up by being two states, or the Palestinian state will end up by being an apartheid state of little city groups around Ramallah and Nablus and Hebron and Janine and etc. And that is an apartheid state, which is not in Israel's interest, let alone in the Palestinian interest. So I think we need to increasingly concentrate on international law and human rights, against which it is hard to see any Western government wishing to argue the case. There's some of the emphases, I think, that we're wanting to make now and into the future. So what you're saying is that you have little faith in Biden to pull back the Israeli leadership? I, I think Biden is an honourable man. Uh, and all that I've seen of him, I, I like his statement that he, he stood in the election as a Democrat. He will serve as, as an American president. In other words, he won't serve in a divisive manner. If he can follow that through in terms of his equal treatment of Palestinians and um, and Israelis, that will be a step in the right direction. I understand he's, he's made the appointment of a, a senior position who is Palestinian, and he, uh, an American Palestinian, uh, over which he's had some flack, I understand. I can't quite remember what position this person is going to, going to um, hold, but it's good that he is prepared to move in that direction. Uh, by the way, I, I've been asked to review a number of books recently, <laughs> 
on climate change, etc. And one of the um, connections that people are making is that if you are violent in one area, you're more likely to be open to violence in another area. So that if if there is violence in the interhu in interhuman activity and relationship, there is likely to be violence in the natural order. I think it's salutary to to, to be reminded that those aspects of Australian politics that favour strong military engagement are also the ones who oppose appropriate environmental responsibility and are more open to exploiting the natural order at, at no matter what the cost there is uh, to species and to sustainability. I think all of these things are connected and, and um, we need to maintain an argument for sustainability based upon peace, concord, goodwill, international law, respect, honour, etc., trust. Thank you so much, and I will speak to you in the new year. That'll be nice, Jan. You've been listening to Bishop George Browning, who is the President of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. La Mama is thrilled to reopen and welcome you back to the theatre from the 5th through to the 20th of December. The program includes a two-week season of Iranian Bauhaus by Alnaz Sheskalani, a series of play readings curated by Rosemary Johns and the first live La Mama Poetica since March. To ensure the comfort and safety of audiences, artists and staff, La Mama's put together a COVID-safe plan in line with the Victorian government guidelines. You can see all the information on La Mama's COVID safety page. Check out lamama.com.au for all information. La Mama is a 3CR supporter. of action against gender-based violence, November 25 to December 10. In the lead-up to Human Rights Day 2020, 3CR's feminist and gender activists bring you grassroots content demanding change for the annual 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash 16 days of action. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests, slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 
Back in December 2018, a Sydney Morning Herald article was titled Sydney University Moves to Sack Notorious Lecturer After Nazi Swatsika Incident. Then in April 2019, exclusive in the Financial Review, lecturer Tim Anderson sues Sydney University over sacking. A controversial academic is suing Sydney University for sacking him over his social media posts and teaching materials that imposed Nazi swastika over Israeli flag, arguing the sacking was a breach of his rights to political opinion. The National Tertiary Education Union is backing former political economy lecturer Dr Tim Anderson in legal action launched last week in the Federal Court against the University and its Deputy Vice-Chancellor Steve Garten that alleges the sacking was unlawful due to protections around intellectual freedoms. Move to Thursday of last week. A Federal Court judge endorses academic cancel culture in a case brought against the University of Sydney by the National Tertiary Education Union of Australia and Tim Anderson. I spoke with Tim the next day and asked him to explain the phrase academic cancel culture. Well, cancel culture in recent times is really being used against the liberal left obsession with identity politics and uh, over the minute of language. So it's sort of been used against liberalism. But there's also a reactionary or right version of it, which is about excluding people, excluding voices from platforms who go against the, the reactionary consensus. So in the case of the Israel cancel culture or the Israeli lobby cancel culture, it's anyone who criticizes Israel, supports BDS, or supports the the resistance from Palestine and from their allies. So in that sense, I'm using this term academic cancel culture, and it's been a very big phenomena in the US in particular, where many hundreds of academics have been targeted by the Israeli lobby because of their support for Palestinian people and for BDS, for example. So that's really what's been happening with me, that I was targeted here. I was one of a number of Australian academics who have been targeted, like they have been in Britain, like they have been in the US, to try and shout down, get rid of platforms for voices that challenge the, the Israeli colony in Palestine. Can you give a couple of examples of people overseas who have been targeted like this? Well, the most prominent example recently, I guess, is Jeremy Corbyn, the former British Labour leader who was now being suspended from the party by his successor, uh, Keir Starmer, um, because of what he was saying about alleged anti-Semitism in the party. That the whole anti-Semitism issue is really dressed up as looking like it's um, racist commentary when in fact it's mostly these days to do with criticism of Israel. So <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn is being excluded from the party he once led. If we look at the US, there's, there's more than 100, uh, sorry, more than 200 academics on a list put out by Israeli lobbies to try and expose them and try and expose them to danger in their jobs, basically. We've also got, on the other side of things, uh, a number of Israeli and Jewish academics who've been attacking this, you know, so by no means all uh, Jewish people or, or, or uh, to some extent, even Israelis um, support this. But it's certainly a very powerful campaign because Israel sees its legitimacy as correctly as one of the key factors in the survival of the 
the colony these days. I mean, it's really two Israeli prime ministers, for example, Ehud Holmert and Ehud Barak, have said in recent years that if and when the fiction of a two-state solution, which has been hanging around for 72 years, when that disappears, Israel is in big trouble because it will face a open anti-apartheid campaign, which it can't really win in terms of international legitimacy. So I think that's what's behind the great effort that's been put into cancelling voices, politicians, academics, um, journalists also. Remember there was a CNN journalist uh, who was kicked out for the same reasons in the US just recently. So that's why there's a great deal of effort because on the one hand the resistance matters in Palestine but on the other hand the international legitimacy battle is seen as extremely important. How far do we need to go back to find out how long this has been happening to you? It began really when uh, I came back from Syria in late 2013 and there was a, a very strong attack from sections of the media, particularly the Murdoch media at that time. Then they more or less excluded me. They tried to... Um, I, I did a few interviews on the ABC and so on at that time over the war in Syria. But um, at that time they were pretending that, it, and, and to many respects they still are pretending that it was a civil war and so on and nothing to do with Israel and... Since then, of course, we know that Israel has admitted many hundreds of attacks on Syria during this, during the conflict in Syria, which is basically driven by the U.S. and its allies. And but then, in early 2017, it became an issue at the university when some sections of the media, once again, the Murdoch media was very prominent in this, began attacking me and my colleagues as we were holding a conference on. Uh, called after the war on Syria and this was at the time when Trump had just come to power and you may remember when when Trump came into office he was promising to withdraw from some of the losing conflicts in the Middle East and that was quite unpopular with the uh, with the oligarchy in the US and there was a certain amount of pressure even I remember the Murdoch media was running some slogans like ours is the truth, not the alternative truth, because Trump has had some stupid expression about alternative realities or alternative truths. But when Trump in early 2017 decided to bomb Syria, to do a missile strike on Syria after another fake weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons scam back at that time, then the media moved in to defend Trump and to get behind Trump, who'd really been persuaded to come into the, you know, the the elite consensus of of the Middle East wars, and in consequence they attacked us and then they began uh, attacking us very strongly and they uh, they've managed to get the university to lodge misconduct charges against myself and uh, I, my tutor at the time, Jay Tharapel, for. Uh, going onto social media and criticising those journalists who were spreading lies about the war. Well, they managed to get the university to agree with them, but the university must have had a a bit of um, agreement of their own, surely. Yes, the university was was trolled by the the Murdoch media at that time um, and some other sections of the media, but there's also an Israeli lobby, which is actually very important to the University of Sydney, there is a sub-branch of the World Zionist Organization, which some years ago was con- was the major private funding source for the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, for example. I know because a whistleblower leaked some spreadsheets on the finances of the university back at that time. 
So they certainly have a great deal of influence and um, remember virtually all universities these days are increasingly dependent on those private sources of finance and they do not disclose them publicly. I remember, for example, I think it was early last year, the University of Sydney announced that they had secured $1 billion in funding for the University of Sydney, but there was no public record of it. So you can imagine uh, it's a serious problem now that our so-called public universities are more than ever dependent on private funds, but there isn't any real public face or accountability or idea that you can say, look, such and such private interest is giving money. How do we know what sort of shady deals are going on between the managers and and those sources of private funding? So you've got pressure from both sides, plus you have the management of the corporate university these days is therefore increasingly vulnerable to outside attacks because it can affect their reputation, it can affect their finances. And so there you, you have this um, strange sort of perfect storm which was completed in my case by the federal court because the federal court in the Peter Ridd case earlier this year and in my case have reinforced that idea that there is no real enforceable academic right to intellectual freedom. And on the other hand, there is the normal common law right of employers, that is to say treating the university as a normal employer-employee situation without any real professional independence, the right of employers to give directions and to expect fidelity, you know, loyalty of the academics to follow orders, even as, in my case, they were secret orders to gag and withdraw public comment, not just that, but also some of my teaching materials and some of my research so that's the very bad precedent that was set by the federal court um, uh, yesterday in my case. Just go back a bit, Tim. Who's Peter Ridd? So Peter Ridd was another academic in Queensland. He was a climate change sceptic who was um, privately funded a case against James Cook University and he was effectively a, a, a sort of a right-wing dissident in his section which was dealing with uh, climate change and the Great Barrier Reef. Now he made a lot of comments publicly about this and the university eventually sacked him and he took the case to court, won in the first instance and then lost uh, earlier this year in with a full bench of the federal court with three judges and that particular case was used in my case because that case reinforced this common law idea of employers giving orders to employees and the, the need for employees to follow their orders, basically. So um, that's why I say that the federal court in those two cases has been reading down the right to any sort of academic freedom and reading up the prerogative of employers to simply treat uh, or university managers to treat academics as simple employees to whom they can give orders. Is there usually only one judge in a federal court? Yeah, in the first instance, there's usually just one judge, as in my case. But in the Ridd case, there was an appeal, and he lost the appeal, and uh, that's why the full court decision has some weight and was used as a precedent by the single judge in my case to reinforce that idea that academics don't really have a special status and don't really have an enforceable right to intellectual freedom. They're still subject to direction, um, even secret direction, which interferes with their intellectual freedom by university managers. That's why I say this is a very serious blow to to academic freedom in this country and the, the union is going to have to consider it very seriously, its next steps. 
Can you summarise the arguments of your support team? Yeah, so the arguments of my lawyers, the case was brought by the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union, and myself, focused on my case, but the union had an interest because it affected the the wording of a clause of, of some clauses in the enterprise agreements which are similar around the different universities. They might vary a little bit, but they're similar as a type of patent bargaining that goes on these days in enterprise agreements. And those clauses say that academics have a right to intellectual freedom and especially in controversial cases, um, unless they're harassing or intimidating someone that they have this right to intellectual freedom. Now the university comes in and, uh, in, in the root case and in my case and argues, yes, but there's a code of conduct which says you have to be courteous and so and so and so and so, and also that we have the right to give you orders to do things. So, you know, to summarise it, basically, the uh, we go into court saying that you can't claim that the exercise of intellectual freedom is misconduct of some sort because it is protected by this clause. So the, what the federal court has said in the two cases is, no, there's no immunity just because something is intellectual freedom. It's not an enforceable right which immunizes the academic from direction by management and uh, the processes of misconduct. And the problem is that the processes of misconduct, as in my case, can involve extremely trivial things like saying, oh, you were insensitive or incourteous to someone, so take that, uh, take that. A social media post down which was critical of someone who ran a, a horrendous smear story against you and told the whole of lies. You can't respond to it if it's, we don't want you to respond to it if it's seen as insensitive or inappropriate or discourteous basically. So in other words those pretexts using the code of conduct are used to overrule any assertion that you have to intellectual freedom or in, in my case I'm saying also that to defend your reputation against smear stories by the media, you're entitled to defend your reputation, basically. And they're saying, no, but only if we think it's um, you know, sufficiently courteous and sensitive. Did the smear in the media come into this at all? I remember reading one. Oh, yeah. It did. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure. There, was, there were several of them. So in 2017, the, the Daily Telegraph, uh, the Murdoch Daily Telegraph, ran a headline. This was at the time of Trump's missile attack on Syria. And I was known as one of the critics of this, uh, you know, of the, the fake pretexts for attacks that the chemical weapons fakes. So they had a picture of me in Syria with a headline, sarin gas bag, and a picture of some young child or a baby with a gas mask on, you know, or suffering from, from, from chemical weapons. So that was the, you know, the, one of the smears of early 2017. Come 2018, they, they had a picture of, a photo that I put on social media of some friends having lunch in Beijing and on the jacket of one of the friends was a badge uh, from Ansarullah in Yemen. Basically, he was supporting Yemen. But on the badge, if you read the Arabic, if you got into the fine print and read the Arabic, there was the expression, death to Israel. So the the outside, you know, the Israel lobby and then the university managers in turn said, oh, this was potentially inciting racial hatred against Jewish people because of you know, the expression death to Israel, which is ubiquitous in the Middle East. It's everywhere, basically. Uh, it's because there's such a wide coalition of countries, particularly Arab countries, which are just horrified by the ethnic cleansing of 
Israel, which affects them all, not just in Palestine. So that's, um, you know, there was the smear saying that, you know, somehow I was anti-Semitic or, or, or something. They dropped all that in, in the end, in the in the legal cases. They didn't try and demonstrate anything like that. They, their main complaint they went in on, which they won on, was to say, basically, I was being insubordinate, which I was. Basically, I was saying, no, I'm not going to accept secret gag orders just because you're being trolled by a powerful lobby group. But what the court has said, and, uh, you know, reinforcing the Ritt case, is that, no, you are expected to follow orders, um, even if they're secret orders and even if they affect your intellectual freedom and even when they're to do with materials you used in teaching and in research. So in that situation, you know, Jan, I could not maintain my intellectual integrity or the intellectual integrity of my work, which, you know, spills over into public comment from time to time, um, had I, you know, agreed to be subject to those sort of ban orders just because the university was facing some potential embarrassment. Well, then what are the consequences for you now? Well, I lost my job 18 months ago and and we lost uh, the union and myself. We lost the appeal. That's it. Basically, the union has to consider its position. The union, the NTU is at the moment um, in a number of universities, including Sydney University, looking at uh, the new round of enterprise bargaining and they're faced with the unfortunate fact that the clause which says that academics have intellectual freedom in the areas in which they work, you know, to talk about what they work, is now seriously compromised. It, it doesn't really seem worth the paper it's written on, so they're going to have to look for some other mechanism to try and support that because not every academic works in um, in controversial areas and um, uh, many of them uh, are already very timid people anyway, basically, but many of them are concerned to maintain their, the, the concept, at least, of intellectual freedom. So the union has to do something to support its members there. I mean, an ideal solution, but one which can't be achieved very rapidly, would be federal legislation here. But simply put, the, the courts have run down the idea that there is intellectual freedom for academics in this country and the union has to try and find some new mechanism to re-establish that because it has it doesn't really affect me as I said in a statement last night um, which I published last night I've had more than 30 years of intellectual freedom I've enjoyed more than 30 years of intellectual freedom at Australian universities and now I can publish where I want I get invited to universities around the world and so on uh, it doesn't matter to me so much that I don't have a job. But look at the next generation of academics. As I said, most of them are already fairly timid people. They are going to have to be looking over their shoulder thinking, I wonder if this causes some embarrassment to the university. Some manager is going to get in touch and say, you know, you have to remove this. You can't say that. You have to say something else. In my case, for example, the having written that, uh, for example, one expression I'd said published that there is no moral equivalence between the violence of the colonizer and the colonized. So the manager get, who's involved in this case gets back to me and says, you must be even-handed to, the Israel, to Israel and Palestine. And that was his version of trying to impose a political approach to the work that I was involved in. Now, to me, that's completely unacceptable. You know, In other circumstances, there may be other academics involved in other fields which are also controversial in, in different ways. Certainly... The foreign policy one 
and the foreign wars is the, one of the hottest ones, let's say, at the moment, and um, particularly because we now have foreign influence laws, which add to that. I think um, you're seeing now there's a bill in federal parliament, I believe, which is talking about um, negating any agreements that universities may have with their foreign colleagues. You can imagine at the moment, in the current atmosphere, any academic relationships between Australian universities and Chinese universities, for example, are going to be subject to scrutiny by federal parliament. And if the federal government, or sorry, the federal government, and if the federal government decides this is against the national interest, they can cancel, you know, agreements like that with countries that are being set up as targets, not countries that are set up as allies, like Israel, for example, which has great influence on federal parliamentarians. It's the major funder of overseas trips by federal MPs, for example, but certainly China, Iran, perhaps Russia, the countries that are targeted by the US and Canberra follows the footsteps of the US on these sorts of things. Uh, university agreements with those countries are now going to be subject to political vetting as well. What support have you had within the university over the years as the university has been attacking well, you? Well, not a lot really, although at the time of when I was suspended, there were, were about, I think, 80 academics that signed a petition you know, opposing my suspension from the university at that time. But, And I have to say that the union supported me all the way through, but the union has, um, along with me, lost this case, basically. And the union is in a very difficult situation now. But generally speaking, as I said, academics are a timid crowd, and they put their heads down and they work away in their own particular fields. Well, Tim, what does it say for our academic institutions? And in, in really another t- way to put it, What's the future of universities after what you've been saying? Well, they'll try and downplay it, of course, and um, normalise it. But I think that this is uh, this case shows that the key threat to academic freedom is the corporate university itself. Not that long ago, we had a couple of instances where the conservatives were arguing intellectual freedom because uh, student activists on my university in particular, for example, had shut down two reactionary speakers. One was a a British soldier who'd come to justify the the massacre in Gaza, the same massacre that I was being targeted over some of my materials, and um, a a sort of a a right-wing counter-feminist woman who was saying that rape on campus wasn't really a big problem. So students um, got together and effectively deplatformed those people. They they shut down the, the event. And the the right-wing sources were saying that, you know, ratbag students basically were a big threat to academic freedom. But in reality, uh, the biggest threat is the corporate university itself, which is a huge consumer of private finance and now involved in a fair amount of private influence peddling and so on. And my case has shown up that the Israel lobby is an important part of that and an important constraint on what anyone's going to say uh, on top of all the other influences and so on. So... As I said, it doesn't really affect me personally so much because I've enjoyed more than 30 years of academic freedom. But I feel very sad, very sorry for the fact that the next generation of academics, who already there's been a great chilling effect by my suspension from the university. You know, people will, won't want to be associated with me or I've had problems, for example, with my PhD students finding proper supervision 
I think there's a fair degree of intimidation there. There was a conference I was invited to at the end of 2018. The, the organisers apologetically withdrew the invitation because they didn't want to attract trouble to themselves. So that sort of climate of fear and intimidation, which has been there already for other reasons, is just going to be deepened, I think. And if the more people hear about the circumstances of this court decision, the, the more they're going to see that there is a real threat to the principle of academic or intellectual freedom for academics, which we always thought was there. In the enterprise agreements, it says, for example, that academics are entitled to criticise their own institutions, which is something that your average employee does not have. Your, your public servant cannot criticise the government, for example. If you're a factory worker, you can't criticise your employee in public. It's seen as disloyal. And normal industrial law in this country, which of course favours the employers enormously, and that's what influences the, the federal court in these cases too, it was thought that academics had some different status to that, that we were independent professionals, for example. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And as I said, the, the impact is going to be much greater on the new generation of academics. And also it's come out in recent times the way that staff and administrative staff are being treated in the universities with their lack of proper pay and conditions. Yes, and that's also a consequence of the increased managerialism and the shift of the universities to being run more like private companies and destroying the ethos of what an academy was, which is to say that not just the staff but the students um, and the members were members of the university. They were, indeed, that's an argument I took into court. I said that this person who was manager who was giving me directions wasn't my employer, and and so the the barrister for the university says, oh, look, he's pretending to be not the employee but to be a, a subcontractor or something like that. No, there was a concept of a professional who was, and in, in fact, in, effectively still is. Most academics still effectively work without real supervision, independently making decisions. No one asks me to approve the materials I'm using in the course or bets, you know, the lectures I'm giving, anything like that. But when it suits the interests of managers who are looking at their operation largely as a, uh, a corporation and very concerned to raise funds and so on, it's uh, the nature of the institutions changed. The way in which they treat their employees has changed. The internal democracy has changed. That is to say, once upon a time, we used to elect heads of faculties and so on. No longer these people are appointed um, from outside and then act often in a very uh, supercilious way. You know that they are to give direction um, and somehow they have left the university community than colleagues. I always regarded managers as simply colleagues who were carrying out some administrative function. But I think managerialism, the corporate university has changed that a lot and that affects everyone uh, in the university, the, the general staff, the academics and the students as well. Finally, Tim, what would you say to students around this time who are finishing off their degrees and had hoped to or are planning to have a career as academics in universities. What advice would you give them? Well, good luck to them, you know, but the, there is a new environment that we've moved into and the, the consequences of the corporate university are substantial in terms of the culture and the constraints that exist there, you know. So 
as I said, not everyone works in controversial areas and people often like to be in little niche areas which they beaver away in. But be aware if you are in a controversial area, you know, that there is now this potential for a managers to breathe down your neck and be concerned about adverse threat in your work, that the the academic freedom that we thought we had as academics is not the same anymore. Really, it's it's shifted substantially and combined with these other factors, that is to say that there is now, you know, criminal laws against foreign influence. <laughs> There's a very new climate, a very severe, harsh sort of climate which people have to navigate. And, of course, it's a time when support for the Palestinians against the occupation by Israel is even more important. That was certainly important in my case, and I think it's important to to recognise what's going on there. I'm, I'm writing something on this theme at the moment, and what's behind this Zionist culture, counterculture. It's quite extreme at the moment, particularly across the English-speaking world, the Britain and the US, which are the major sponsors of Israel, France also to a degree, because, precisely because there is such a legitimacy crisis for the Zionist colony. The resistance hasn't gone away. The demographics have been working against Israel. And while a lot of people look at it and say, look, it's very powerful, it has nuclear weapons, it has powerful friends, I remember that was precisely what people were saying about South Africa in the mid-1980s. South Africa had nuclear weapons, it had powerful friends. How were people going to challenge the system? So, uh, But there is, we are moving into a phase where the idea of a two-state solution will be seen as a, a pie in the sky and what's being offered is a type of a Bantustan homeland situation that was also circulated in South Africa in the 80s. And, and so that threat is seen by a lot of the Israeli leaders and I think that's why a great deal of attention is being given to the the very artificial defence of Israel at the moment. And when, when I say the defence of Israel, that means also the pretext behind all of the multiple wars, that is to say there's at least, at least seven wars in the Middle East now, which Australia is involved in one form or another. All of those are linked into that because it's an attempt to... It's a, it's a project of hegemony over the region, which is failing, like the wars in Iraq and Syria are failing, for example, like the... The renewed aggression against Iran, which is somewhat up in the air with a new administration coming into uh, Washington now. But all of those things are very deeply interconnected. And so that creates turmoil in the Middle East, but also turmoil in terms of how people are targeted and attacked and uh, how this cancel culture creeps into um, our own culture. You might remember there was a, a Labour candidate parliamentary candidate, a woman in Western Australia who was driven out of the race not so long ago because she something she'd said about Palestine. So in the political sphere and in media and in academia, there's a, a great deal of pressure these days for people not to open their mouths and say the wrong thing. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. That was an interview I recorded with Dr. Tim Anderson last Friday. And now... Israelis widely agreed to be the most likely perpetrator behind the assassination of yet another Iranian scientist. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. 
local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.